Part 2. Historical Context for Farm Life. I invite you to turn, if you will, to the 11th chapter of the Book of Romans. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. I want to reason with you a little from God's Word tonight on this thought. A great revival is coming. And I want to talk about how that revival will come and then close with a brief word about the evidence how we'll know when this revival is here. And I read about this revival beginning in verse 25 of the 11th chapter of Romans. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Romans 11.25 In 1895, the town of Carlisle, Kansas, consisted of several square miles of prairie. A more concentrated urban settlement had failed to take root, so those who stayed moved their families to the fields and farmland that surrounded the remains of a meager town center. These families built their lives around the daily demands of tending to a farm and the faith that kept them working towards a plentiful harvest. Welcome to Episode 2 of That Be Revival. This week, you will hear two accounts of farm living in Carlisle each interspersed with historical context and elaboration. Our first account is that of a livestock trader from the northern farms named Claude Ranville. It is July 10th, Livestock sale in Florence, Kansas, conducted at 10 o'clock in the morning, July 10, 1895. Delayed one half hour due to dust. Six hens and two hogs to Percy Warden of Carlisle, Kansas. $15, paid in full. Hogs will be transported to Warden property at a later date owing to a lack of wagon space. One mule, one weather, and one doe to Josephine Tallert of Carlisle, Kansas. $17, paid in full. One draft horse and one rabbit to Maud Seeley of Carlisle, Kansas. $20, paid in full. Rabbit given to Mrs. Seeley at no cost. Livestock sales ledgers such as the one you are hearing would have been a common find in Florence, Kansas. Florence was a larger settlement 
one the farming citizens of Carlisle would have traveled to in order to purchase their livestock. Though years later, the settlement of Florence would collapse due to the lack of railroad access, in 1895, it was the largest colony within five miles of the Carlisle station. As such, commercial traders would often set up shop in Florence to take advantage of the colony's centralized location in Allen County and proximity to nearby Deer Creek. Three cows to William Piper of Carlisle, Kansas. $22 paid in full. Eight chicks to Almagory of Iola, Kansas. $10 paid in full. Two rams and one sow to Ira Amberson of Carlisle, Kansas. $19 paid in full. One poult and one cockerel to Melvin Hall of Carlisle, Kansas. $6 paid in full. Prize hog Bert, 370 pounds, sold to Esther Allen of Carlisle, Kansas. $20 paid in the prices you are hearing were low for the nation as a whole, as was the quality of the animals sold in Florence. Economic hardship plagued the state of Kansas, Allen County in particular. Population growth was nearly stagnant, and with few large cities to speak of, the empty flatland of Kansas was passed over by most settlers and their money. As Carlisle resident, James Ian Maynard wrote in a letter to his former business partner, Oh, David, why have you kept the good stock all to yourself in Missouri? There is a fear out here for money that they bemoan in every paper and every other state in the Union. They smear us in Kansas, or else they forget us outright. The population is stagnant because of the tales they tell of our lot in life. Tales that make no mention of our great integrity, I might add. By God's good grace, we are a resilient people in spite of our destitution. But David, if you could just quit hogging all the good stock in Missouri. Claude Ranville continues. One mule to Hubert Cook of Milford, Missouri. $10 paid in full. Mule and ill health at time of sale. Two lambs and one hen to Amos Beekman. $9 paid in full. Note from the salesman. The aforementioned hen sold to Mr. Beekman was observed producing eggs at a slower pace than that of the rest of the stock. This fact was communicated to Mr. Beekman prior to the sale. As such, no restitutions shall be owed henceforth if the hen continues to underproduce. Three hens, two hogs, one cow to Hiram Green of Iola, Kansas, representative of Iola Poor Farm. $25 paid in full. The Poor Farm, Claude one mentions, was established in Iola, the seat of Fallon County, in 1871. After a new tax was approved by ballot that provided the funds necessary to buy the land and raise the building, the poor farm opened its doors to the most impoverished people in northern Allen County. There, they could find shelter and what meager sustenance the county could afford. Citizens of Carlisle, however, took pride in creating a self-sustaining community in which neighbors would lend support to each other in times of need. 
Because of this, no name from Carlisle, Kansas was ever found on the Iola Poor Farms Registry. Sale closed with a large order of 15 chickens placed by Reverend Joseph Salworth, the preacher from Iola, who was on record as intending to build a small farm outside his church house. It would be wise to maintain contact with the Reverend for future sales. Note from the salesman, the residents of Carlisle, for their part, appear to after this sale be well stocked in the sparse need for animals that they have. Attempts in this sale and others to suggest expansion of their stock fell on deaf ears. Claude's note at the end of his ledger reveals an important reality about the mindset of the citizens of Carlisle in 1895. The town feared keeping a large stock as erratic weather visited frequent calamities upon the plains. A decades-long history of drought had reared its head again just months before this sale, and on April 12th, a great storm of dust and snow swept the town. Carlisle resident Amelia Stewart wrote, A black cloud some 200 feet high announced the front of the storm approaching. As it neared, it became clear this was a wall of dust kicked up with the snow by a great gale of wind. God hadn't told us in prayer that anything was coming and the wind whipped so quick we had no time to secure the flock. Those that weren't lost outright had wandered by mistake into creeks they couldn't see in front of them. Creeks so muddied by the dust that the poor souls became entrenched and drowned. We began the day with seven cattle, four sheep, and three horses. We ended the day with one horse. I'm thankful we never named them. As I say, never give a name to a thing you can't stand to lose. And we do lose everything in the end. God has his own farm, and the bounties of the earth cannot come to us if he has no animals to work his plows or lay eggs. At least, that is what we tell the children. Our second account this week is from Lottie Beekman, an eight-year-old girl. Sitting at a makeshift desk in her modest family home on Sunday evening, April 21, 1895, Lottie practiced her developing writing skills with a prompt given by her school mom. Lottie's charming and earnest response shows a perspective on farming life that could only be mustered by the beautiful pre-egoic innocence of childhood. My favorite place is the chicken coop. It is where we keep all our hens, and sometimes the rooster come by to see how they are doing. I was very excited when Ma told me it was my time to feed the chickens. My big sister Flossie used to do it, and now that she's grown and gone, I have to feed the chickens. I see them through the circle windows that sister made in the side before she left us to the feeding. It looks warm and happy inside. If I were a chicken, though I am not a chicken, 
I should think I would like it there. It looks like a well-to-do house all on its own. Flossie said the coop is made of ash wood. She said ash is the strongest wood of all, but she told me real quiet, like it was our secret. I do not own an eraser, and now I feel wrong for telling you my sister's secret. Please do not tell. We have 10 chickens, and almost all of them are ripe and plump. There is Olive, uh, Little Angel, Bertha, Mary, and many others. Lottie's account is similar to many others told by the children of Carlisle, of whom there were about 40 of the schooling age. Each day, Carlisle's schoolhouse would see an attendance of anywhere from a dozen to a dozen and a half children, rotating in and out at their family's will, depending on the work that needed to be done at the farm each day. The year was comprised of two school terms, one in the summer from May to August and one in the winter from November to April, with the gap owing to the harvest. Lottie's assignment, then, would have been written at the end of the winter term. She continues. Flossie gave the coop a name. She said all homes need names, like how God's home is named the church. The chicken's home, Flossie said to me, was named Florence. There is a town also called Florence, but it is not that. I went to Florence with my ma and pa and Flossie when I was young. We went to get some Yankee notions from the general store. There are lots of happy people in Florence. I told ma that the air is much quieter here than in Carlisle, but she told me to shush and I said no more. Flossie smiled at me though, and I smiled back. We returned home by sunset, although we feared we would have to stay a little while in Florence on account of the dusty wind. It is a bother indeed. It was not only the need for hands in the fields that kept children from the schoolhouse. Many children traveled two or three miles to school, either by pony or by foot, and the dust storms on the plains often made the journey impossible or extremely dangerous. Just over a week before Lottie's writing, Carlisle schoolmarm Hester Rutledge wrote, I sit alone in the schoolhouse today. A fierce storm of dust took the plains this morning, and it was good fortune that I shut the door behind me just as it swept in. I pray all my students are safe at home in these times. The wind has let up, so I should see them all again tomorrow for lessons. Though I notice as the dust settles the screeching noise in the air, which I cannot explain. Has Lottie continues. The hens and chicken are quiet, but the rooster is loud. They hardly make a sound, but for the morning time, when they are hungry for their feed. But now, it is the hour of candle lighting, and they are making quite a ruckus. I can hear them, tucked away inside the coop, babbling to each other. I cannot know what they say, but I can listen. Now the candle is getting low, and I ought to get to bed or else I will be late tomorrow to feed them. But now, the wind outside sounds nice. 
The next step in a typical child's nighttime ritual would be to find the family's prayer book and go to their rooms for bedside prayer. The door is open and I am leaving now. I am out past the coop. The chickens are saying, go Lottie, or maybe they are not talking to me. I do not have wings, but now I am flying. Now I am on the road. Now I am in the ditch. Now I am in the town. And I see to the left of me that there is a part of a building and it is open. All of the buildings in this part are open and they are falling down and no one uses them except for the man who brings us letters from far away places. I see him locking the post office door. He is excited to go to his home and be away from the strange new machine inside, what I heard they brought here on the train. He has a big dog for a pet. Look at those trees. I think I will go see how they are doing tonight. It is harder to hear out here. The noise that I hear everywhere in the air is louder when there are only leaves to hear it besides me, like it is speaking up because it knows it has only my ears, so just I have to listen. And I take in my hand a pile of twigs that crunched under my favorite shoe, and I feel them begin to break even more between my fingers. So I rub the dirt that is fallen from them along my forearm to give it a home. All homes need names and I call my arm Florence. The dry leaves are rough when I lie in them and make circles with my arms. I roll over so I can see how they feel backwards and I can tell where there was a tree maybe many years ago. I take a whole lot of dirt in my hand and I place it where I think the tree was. I am making a castle. An animal loved this tree and called it her home. But now I just must make it with the dirt again and a lot of it gets under my fingernails. But that is okay. I breathe the air and it hurts a little from the cold. It's easy to pick little pieces off the trees, but I worry if it hurts them so I don't. A toad leaps over my foot. Dirt is shaken and some of it is even floating. That tree was over there before and now it is not. Moss has crawled to the other side of the rock. Three deer are staring at me and they will not stop it even when I ask them to. I laugh because the grass is wriggling and that tickles. The leaves are all pointing the same way. I think they are looking at the rock. This rock has a face and this rock has no face at all. But it smiles. And that's when the noise stops for a little. And it makes me hear as one leaf falls from the biggest tree and flies its way over to my hand. And it gets very bright, very, very bright. And I close my eyes 
My ears are plugged like I'm under a great water and there's plenty swimming all around me and I want to say hello so I open my eyes. Hello. I want to tell you about my chickens. They all have names like Virginia, Duck, Ruby, Olive, Little Angel, and many others. Next week on That'd Be Revival, something about a horse. Be sure to visit thatbyrevival.net to download our weekly newsletter. In it, you'll find photographs, documents, and other material on this week's topic that we couldn't fit in the episode. Thank you for listening.